Well, we are uh, closing out our Why series. If you haven't been with us, we've been in a series exploring these really difficult questions of life and faith. Uh, week one, we asked this question, why do bad things happen? Uh, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world if there's a, a good God? We're going to touch on a little bit of that uh, today. The second week, we asked uh, an equally difficult question. Why is Jesus the only way? What's with the exclusivity of the Christian faith? Last week, we asked a really broad question. Why am I here? What is my purpose on the earth? And today, uh, maybe we just keep on asking the most difficult question ever. I don't know. Uh, but today might be the difficult question of them all, and it's why is there a hell? And as we look at that, uh, we're going to look at it soberly, but we're going to surrender it to uh, what God wor God's Word says. And so I'd invite you, if you didn't already, turn to Matthew 10, uh, 26 through 33. Dave said it well. Grab a Bible. Uh, we say it here all the time, but the power is in my words this morning. The power is in the Word of God. And so get it in front of you somehow, whether it's on your phone or an actual Bible. But Matthew 10, 26 through 33 is where we'll be. And as we talk about hell, I know a lot of us come in here with different lenses that we have on in regard to our view of hell. We have different backgrounds in our experiences with talking about hell. I know for me, I grew up in the church. I was born in a pew, in church all the time. And I heard about hell a lot. I heard it talked about a lot. I heard it yelled about a lot. I heard it uh, acted out in like dramas and skits where uh, it was really scary and someone would play Satan and there was fire and they would show a vivid picture of like what this could look like and a hundred people would get saved. Like even the, the counselors and the pastors would rededicate their life to Jesus like, just in case, right? And so I saw this vivid picture of hell, heard about it a lot growing up, and, and that was my experience in regard to talking about hell. Some of you have different experiences. Some of you, it's just walking down the street corner and seeing somebody yelling or holding up a sign and condemning everybody to hell. Some of you clicked on the TV and seen that. Some of you haven't been in church for a long time because of those types of experiences, right? And so as we talk about hell, I know all of us, we come in here, as soon as I say that word, it brings back all these emotions, maybe some of those vivid pictures, those teachings, those yellings, and, and you think a certain way about hell. And I, what I would say is, no matter what your background is, all of us are at least a little bit uncomfortable talking about hell. Uh, it would be a little bit uh, weird if you weren't, Right? Like if out in the lobby uh, before church, you, you came up to me and said, hey, pastor, here we're talking about hell today. Like, up top, high five. I'd leave you hanging. Right? We don't get excited talking about hell. Right? It's not something we come, I come this week, and I'm like, man, just this study this week has been so uplifting. I just can't wait to get there and talk about hell. That's, that's, that would be weird, right? So if you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable, even right now, congratulations, you are, you're normal, right? And not just you. Uh, a guy named R.C. Sproul, uh, a deeply respected author and theologian, was asked this, which doctrine do you struggle with the most? And he answered, hell. Do you still believe it exists? Absolutely. But he struggles with it. He's uncomfortable with it. This is a theologian, author, pastor that a lot of you may even know, and, and he struggled with hell. So it's normal if that's where you are, but it's also necessary to be that uncomfortable. It's normal, but it's also necessary. Here's why. Because we believe, just so you know, we believe at Phoenix Bible Church that the Bible teaches there is hell. It's eternal separation from God. It is horrible. We believe that. 
We don't just believe that because it says that places in the Bible. We believe that because Jesus said that. You see, some of us, if we're not too familiar with the Bible, will think, hey, man, I love Jesus. Not so sure about all the wrath stuff in the Bible. Like, why can't we just focus on following Jesus? I mean, he invited the little children to come and sit around him. Like, just tempt less hell, more Jesus. The problem with that is Jesus talked about hell more than any biblical figure in the Bible. He talked about it more than heaven. He described it more vividly than heaven. And so how do we reconcile that? If we talk about the Bible, we have to talk about hell. If we talk about Jesus, we have to talk about hell. We are a Jesus-centered, Bible-based church. And so what Jesus cares about, what the Bible cares about, we care about. Even if it's uncomfortable, it's necessary. And so that's, that's what lands us here this morning. And as we look at our passage today, look at it with me. This is just one example of Jesus talking about hell. He talked about hell in lots of other places. This is just one, Matthew chapter 10. And the context is Jesus has been talking to his disciples, his followers, and he's been explaining to them the persecution, the hardship, the difficulty that's going to come with following Jesus. All of chapter 10, you can go back and read it. He's sending them out on mission, and he's saying, hey, if if I get persecuted, you're going to get persecuted. If I get hardship, you're going to have hardship in life. And he's explaining that to them, but then he begins to comfort them. But this comfort, it's interesting, is tied to an unlikely Source. Look at the text with me, verse 26. He says this, Have no fear of them, these ones that are going to persecute you, harm you. Have no fear of them for, because, and then he gives four contrasts. He says what's been covered, it'll be revealed. What's been hidden will be made known. What's dark will be brought into the light. What's been whispered will be proclaimed. Jesus is is basically comforting them. He's saying, don't be afraid. Why? Because there's going to be justice. Be be comforted. I know it's going to be hard, but take comfort. Why, Jesus? Because there's going to be justice. Interesting pairing, right? We don't typically in our culture, you probably don't do this, we don't typically pair those things together like love and justice, goodness and, and wrath. We typically have a hard time reconciling those things, don't we? In fact, what we're going to do today is we're going to question our questions. We have two points, that's all today. And the way we're going to frame it is we're going to question our questions. And so our first question, our first point is this, are love and justice really at odds with one another? If we ask this question, how could a loving God allow people to go to hell? How could a loving God bring so much justice Well, let's question that question. Is the love of God really opposed to the justice of God? Let's explore that in these next few verses. As we look at these verses, in addition to what we've just seen, don't be afraid, comfort is related to justice. We keep seeing that. Verse 28, look at that verse. It says, Jesus talks about being uh, God being the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Physical death, spiritual death, the eternal justice of God. We see that verse, right? Very serious, weighty judgment. But notice in the next few verses, Jesus pivots to the love of God. He says, there's these sparrows, birds that have value, but your value is far greater than many sparrows. 
And then look at verse 30, sandwiched in there, he says a verse that some of us have memorized. He says, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. You have way more value than the birds. I mean, just picture the birds. You have way more value than them as God's creatures. But, but at the same time, he's talking about God destroying people in hell. Now that verse, even the hairs of your head are numbered, we recite that, quote that at baby dedications. And we got cute little babies on stage, and we're like, man, what a gift. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. Now, we don't quote the other verse about hell. But maybe we should, right? Probably not. But, but God seems, Jesus seems not to have a problem with love and justice. Like some of you are thinking, I never knew that verse was right next to the verse about hell and destroying both body and soul. Always, even the hairs on my head are numbered. And, and the reason you see both is because God sees both. Because God is love, but he's also just. The two don't conflict with God, even though they may with us. We see this in other places in Scripture. We see it with a guy like Paul. Paul was known, if you've ever read any of the New Testament, Paul wrote most of it, the Apostle Paul. And he was known for his relentless focus on grace. Right? Read the book of Ephesians. It's all about the glorious, lavishing grace of God. Paul was known for, for grace. Yet, same guy talked about wrath and judgment more than 80 times in his letters. For Paul, love and justice seemed to to sync up. For John, Jesus' best friend, he saw Jesus' love up close and personal in his life, but also in his death on the cross. He saw love displayed and demonstrated by Jesus, up close and personal. He wrote a book about it, 1 John. It's all about love, like we read it at weddings. It's about love, yet same guy, John also wrote the book of Revelation, where we see him give us a vivid picture of eternal torment and hell. And so the Bible doesn't see a confliction between love and justice, even though sometimes we do. But if you really thought about it, it's not just the Bible. We see this truth in life. Yesterday, I got an amber alert on my phone, as many of you probably did as well, right? Uh, And they do this so well now, right? I'm getting a haircut with my son, and my phone is blowing up, and so is everybody else in the barbershop. It was a little concerning, to be honest with you, because I didn't look at my phone, and I asked my barber, I was like, what's going on? And he was like, I don't know. I just looked at it, but I didn't even read it. It's like, that's kind of the opposite of the point of an alert. You're supposed to be alerted to read it. Um, But everybody's phone was going off, and finally I look a little bit later, and it's like, hey, this car and these kids, and and be on the lookout for that. And then a little bit later in the day, I'm looking at my Facebook news feed, and it's the same thing, this Amber Alert. And a little bit later, I'm driving down the road, and I see these billboards, and they're like Amber Alert, and they say this car and these kids. And and then the digital sign over the highway is this car and these kids, Amber Alert. And they did a really good job of alerting us. Now, if I were to walk into a, a grocery store and I pass by that car, what was it again? I think that's, the, and I see some kids, and I see a, an older guy, and it looks like they're in danger. It looks like they're being harmed, and I, and I start to connect it to, would it be loving if I just saw that but ignored it, right? Would it be loving if I saw that and said, guys, bring it in. Give me a hug. No. 
Right? All of you would say, what? That's, that's cruel to do that. How could you not do something? Right? Don't you love these people? Don't you value human beings? And I would have to say, oh, yeah, I do. And I would have to go over there and bring some justice. I would have to break that up. I'd have to call the authorities to break that up. Why? Because love not only includes justice, you can't have love without it. Right? Love requires justice. We see it in life. We see it in the Bible. Love requires justice. And, and here's the problem we have and what we wrestle with is, is we like to put Jesus in a little box, right? Infinite, all-powerful, all-glorious Jesus. We like to bring him down to our level and fit him in a little box and shake our little fist at the big Jesus. And we're like, God, just why don't you fit in a little box, Jesus? Like, you're just loving. You just bring the kids around the table with you. You just tell people, man, I forgive your sin. That, that's Jesus. That's my Jesus. He's my homeboy. That's the box he fits in. But then you read other parts about Jesus talking about a sword. And don't go bury your parents. Follow me. Well, can we just leave that part out about Jesus? Because that doesn't, I can't fit that in my box. My box is just loving. Well, Jesus proclaims true. Jesus talks about hell just as much as he talks about heaven. That doesn't really fit in my box. And we want to put Jesus in a box. But you need to know he does not fit there. He never has. We've been talking about it over and over. It seems like a trend the last several weeks. Jesus is truth and grace. Jesus, the Bible talks about giving as an act of grace. That doesn't fit in our box. Jesus talks about love, the unrelenting, gracious love, amazing love of God. But he also talks about justice. And so as you, as you think about Jesus, as you think about the Bible, recognize some of your preconceived notions about Jesus, about hell. And I think you'll begin to see, go on a journey to see, these two things aren't disconnected. In fact, they're closely tied together. You need justice to have love. So that's our first point, is love and justice actually go together. Our second point, our second question is this. Does God choose hell or do we? This questions our question. Again, a common question we have is, how could a good God send people to hell? How could a good God allow people to go to hell? God, why would you do that? Why not just give them more chances? Right? How could that happen? We're going to look at that. Verse 32 in Matthew 10, look at that verse with me. Jesus says this, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so why is there a hell? 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is patient. He desires all men to come to repentance. God is patient. He desires all men to come to repentance. A repentance, a turning from sin and self from denying Jesus to following Jesus. Jesus says right here, if you deny me, then I deny you. If you never turn from your sin, your denial, your rejection, and follow me, that there's, there's hell. Robert talked about this last week, that over and over you and I say, he brought out the chairs, over and over you and I say, God, I don't need you. 
I don't want you. I don't need you. I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't need you. And over and over in our lives, we say that. And eventually, eventually, if we never turn from that and turn to God and say, God, I do need you. I want you. You're the only hope in my life. You are my Savior. If we never turn and say that, that ultimately God will give you over to what you want. C.S. Lewis, author, theologian, Yoda of the Christian faith, said it this way. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. He says, all that are in hell, choose it. You need to know that, that hell is not the result of the harshness of God, but the horrible nature of our sin. That as we think about hell and we wrestle with God, how could you send people there? How could you do that? That anyone that's in hell, now or in the future, anyone that ends up in hell, eternally separated from God, this horrible place, they're there because they want it to be there. You, you've seen this in your life. You've seen people over and over, hey, you need Jesus. You need God. I don't need that. I, I, don't, I don't believe in that stuff. That's a crutch. I don't, it's not for me. And if you do that over and over and over, and God is patient God desires all men to reach repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9. But if you over and over, you turn to yourself and your sin, and you say, I want this, and I don't need you, God, and I don't need the grace of God in my life, and I don't need the forgiveness of God in my life. I can do it on my own. I can do it through religion. I can do it through my irreligion. I can do it my way. And if you keep doing that and say that over and over and over, God will say, okay, have it your way. And that's what hell is. That's what eternal separation is. Now, some of us may say, well, Tim, why so extreme? Why so extreme? Why so serious? Like, hell, isn't there another consequence that could have happened? Well, think about this, and I've said this before, but penalty is always related to position. Like, think about this with me. Uh, if you were to um, come over to my house, my three-year-old daughter has uh, a playhouse, it's a beautiful frozen playhouse. She's got Elsa, Anna hanging out in there doing their thing, right? She's got this big playhouse. And if somehow you were to get in my house and you were to come to the playhouse and maybe you just had this uh, agenda towards my little three-year-old daughter. I don't know why you would do this, right? But you said, hey, I'm going I'm to jack her playhouse up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vandalize that playhouse, right? Hey, don't do that. But if you were to somehow do that, we would have what? A conversation, an issue, a problem. I'd come to you and be like, bro, why you got to jack up my, my daughter's playhouse? Like, what, what is wrong with you? It's frozen. Like, who doesn't like Elsa? Like, why would you do that? We would have a, a conversation. Uh, up the ante a little bit. If you were to uh, come to my house and uh, vandalize the outside of my actual house. I'm not talking about a playhouse anymore. This is my house. The place I live in, right? You come to my house during the night. You, you, I'm going to jack up his, vandalize his house, right? What, what, what's going to happen? I'm going to call the cops, just so you know. <laughs> They're going to file an incident report, right? And, and maybe we talk and maybe I choose in my grace not to press charges, right? 
But there's going to be an incident, right? Now, up the ante a little bit more. You go to the White House. Jack up the White House. Vandalize the White House. What happens then? Not a conversation. Not an incident. Felony. Crime. Maybe even terrorism, right? Why? Because the penalty is always connected to the position. So, up the ante a little bit more. God, creator of all things. By him, for him, all things are created. The whole universe rests in his hand. He is Lord over all. All of creation is God's house. He's holy. He's just. He's perfect. You sin. You vandalize the house of God. You sin against that position. What's the penalty for that? An eternal God? A completely holy and just God? What's the penalty for that? Penalty is equal to position. And so we don't grasp this because we we don't grasp the weight of sin against a holy God. We don't grasp the, the character and nature of God, the person and work of God. We diminish God, so we diminish the consequences of sin. I think there's different reasons for this. We have, we have, um, we have movies, we have, we have jokes that kind of talk about hell, and, and maybe you've seen some of these, and you're like, well, hell's not that bad of a place, right? I mean, we just get to hang out with Satan and indulge in sinful pleasures. That's what you see in the movies, right? And we don't, don't really grasp the, the weight of, of hell. Sometimes we think it's the momentary pleasure of sin, just doing that over and over again. It's like a nightclub that never ends, right? But the reality is we look at the description of hell in the Bible, it's not the momentary pleasure of sin. It's the eternal pain that it causes. Right, just look at a few texts with me or listen to a few texts with me. Matthew 25 says this, it's an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, his demons. Mark chapter 9, a place where the worms do not die and the fire is not quenched. Luke 13, it's a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation 14 and 20, it's a lake of burning sulfur where the wicked are tormented day and night forever. Even Jesus in this passage, Matthew 10, he says, Don't fear the one who can kill the body to the disciples. Fear the one who can destroy the body and the soul in hell. Just think about that picture Jesus is painting for the disciples of Jesus who would be persecuted. Their bodies would be afflicted. Go on to read the book of Acts. They're flogged at times. Their bodies are beaten for following Jesus. Jesus goes on to be nailed to a cross. How? With his body. And so Jesus says, hey, don't fear the one who's going to hurt the body. Flog it, beat it, crucify it to a cross. Don't fear that. Fear the one who's going to destroy the body and the soul in a place called hell. Hell is a horrible place. It's a place that even this morning, even right now where you sit, it should cause you not to be scared, but to be sobered. To take sin seriously. To receive salvation humbly. To share your faith boldly and urgently. 
that we should take hell seriously as Jesus takes it, as the Bible takes it. Now, some uh, in our lane, when I say our lane, Bible-believing churches, theologians, pastors, Jesus-centered churches, pastors, we'll look at some of these texts and look at the context and the literary genre and say maybe this was symbolic. Uh, maybe this was imagery like lake of fire and darkness and gnashing of teeth. Maybe, maybe it was uh, imagery. And I, and I read some books of people I deeply respect who believe that. And let's just say for a minute that is true. And here's what they will say if you, if you actually read those guys. Uh, they won't say, hey, man, it's not actually a lake of fire. It's all symbolic. Don't you really worry about hell? That's not how they say it. They say, hey, it's imagery of something way worse. It's a symbol pointing to something much greater, right? Uh, just like uh, my wedding ring. My wedding ring is, is a symbol, right? What's it a symbol of? Marriage. So what is greater, my wedding ring or my marriage? My marriage, right? My, my wedding ring is a symbol, like that reminds me of my beautiful wife, this eternal, uh, lifelong commitment that I've made to her, this covenant that we have together, this massive weighty thing that reflects Christ and the church, marriage. How do I get that? From, from a, a ring. It's a symbol. So even if you were to ascribe and say, hey, it's all imagery, it's all symbolic, fire, all that gnashing of teeth stuff, I mean, it's all... Yeah, it's, it's symbolic of something much greater. And this is the best way they could describe it. I don't, don't want to know what that is. I don't want you to know what that's going to be like. But I will tell you this, it's a horrible place, and it should sober us to our sin. If you don't know Jesus, it should cause you to receive Jesus humbly. If you do know Jesus, it should cause you and lead you to share your faith urgently. So how do we do this? And that leads us to our application. How do we live this out? The first thing is we share Christ. Uh, we share Christ collectively as a church. We proclaim the gospel every single Sunday. If you've been coming here for a little while, hopefully you say, yep, you do. Yep, you always bring it back to the gospel. Yep, you always talk about life, death, resurrection of Jesus, that we are sinners in need of a Savior because we always need to hear that we share Christ. We share our faith publicly as a church. We do that through our proclamation. We do that through our giving. Uh, if you give here, uh, we are a part of a church network called Converge, and we support missionaries, most of them in the unreached, unchurched places of the world. And we give a portion of our budget. So if you give financially, you are helping share Christ. And so we want to do that. We want to proclaim Christ, give towards the proclamation of Christ, because we believe hell is real and God is real and God is love and he doesn't want people to go there. He's patient. He wants them to be saved. And we want to proclaim that every day of our lives in every possible way we can as a church. But we also do that personally. Brad talked about this, this fall five card. We gave this to you as just a tool to say, hey, write down a few names of people you can just start praying for. Start inviting into your life. Invite to church as we start this new series so they can hear about Jesus. And I know many of us, I know because I've talked to you, it's not ethereal. You say, well, Tim, I, I don't know. Like, that's intimidating to share my faith. Right? I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't want to be one of those people like Bible thumpers. 
I don't want to hold up a sign. Like, I don't want to try to shove it down my coworker's throat. Like, you know about Jesus? Hey, hell's a real place. Uh, Phoenix is hot, but it's hotter. Like, and you're like, I, I don't want to be that guy. And listen, just to be clear, I don't want you to be that guy either. Don't be that guy. But I do want you to pray urgently for family members, friends, coworkers who you know who don't know Jesus yet. Because why? You believe there's a hell, but you believe God isn't sending people there. He's saving people from there. And you would, just like if the building were on fire and there's one exit door, you would go grab some people and say, come with me. And you would invite them to church. You would pray for them urgently because of the reality of, of hell. We would share our faith, share Christ. Second thing, that we would surrender control. My uh, three-year-old daughter walked in my office this week. I was doing some work, and she came up to me, and she said, Daddy, I want some money. <laughs> Three years old. And uh, then she proceeded to, to run around the room in my office and said, Daddy, give me money. Give me money. Give me money. Over and over like that. And finally, I, I stop her, and I say, Baby girl, if I give you money, what are you going to do with it? Just curious. Three years old. And she said this. She looked me straight in the eyes and she said, I'm going to hold it. <laughs> it's a little bit scary, I'll be honest with you. Humbling for me as a dad. She gave me this look. It's like, I'm going to hold it. And we didn't talk about anything after that beyond holding it. She just wanted to hold it. You see, what I, what I saw in my three-year-old daughter in that moment is something I see in myself all the time, something you've seen yourself all the time. We just want to hold it. We just want control. Like of our destiny. That's why we don't like hell. Like, that means I don't have control, Tim. I just want to hold it. And so we want to hold it with one of two hands. We want to hold it with our religious hand. I just, man, Tim, I go to church. I mean, I, I give. I do give money. I pray. I mean, I'm trying not to sin as much. And we just, we want to hold it with our religious hand. And some of us say, no, I, I, want, that. I want to hold it, but it's irreligious, right? Well, I want to hold it. I do what I want to do, Tim. Nobody tells me what to do. Nobody tells me how to live my life. And maybe we squeeze in some good things into our religious hand, and we're like, I recycle. I mean, I'm a good person. Who are you to tell me that I'm a sinner? I recycle. I drive a Prius. I'm saving the environment. We hold this in our irreligious hand. Listen, wherever you are, religious hand, irreligious hand, we all want the same thing. We want control. But here's the way Christianity works is that it's not when you hold on to things, religious, irreligious, with a tight grip, that God saves you, that God saves you from hell, that he restores you into a right relationship with your creator. It's not when you hold on to things, it's when you, when you let them go. Religious things, irreligious things, it's when you say, God, I need you. All my religion, all my self-righteousness, all my church attendance, all my khakis, button-up shirts, all my Bible memorization, good things, but, but that's not going to get me into heaven. That's not going to get me united to a perfect and holy God in the midst of my sin. I'm letting that go. I surrender to you. 
That it's only when irreligious people say, Man, I, I don't think I actually know the way to go. I'm sorry, forgive me of my sin. All these good things, forgive me of those things too, the recycling and all those things and the good person I'm trying to be and grab at. Just let go. That's when, that's when, go back to the beginning here, that's when you can live a life without fear. That's when you can be freed up, not to worry about hell, not to worry about persecution, not to worry about approval, not to worry about what others think of you, not to worry about your standing with God. When you give up control, when you cede it over to God, that's when you find peace and joy and life everlasting. That's when you find all the stuff you're trying to earn because you receive it freely in Jesus. You see, Christianity is different than every other faith, every other religion. Christianity, you think about this, begins where everybody else wants to end. Like, you want to end up closed-handed, closed-handed, religious, irreligious. I want to end up approved, forgiven, right, loved. Everybody wants that. You want to end up that way, and so you grab and you hold. Christianity begins where you want to end, that the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the moment you choose to trust him, surrender control, open up empty hands of faith to him, the moment you do that, you receive that approval. You receive that forgiveness, that love for eternity, right? You receive what you've been trying so hard to earn. And so, As we talk about hell, I know it's a sobering truth, and it should sober us to receive Christ, to surrender control. And so I want to give us an opportunity to do that now. Would you just bow your head with me and pray with me? If you were here this morning, you would just say, honestly, I've never surrendered control. I've held things with a tight grip my whole life, and maybe they've been in church, maybe they've been outside of the church, but but you're just in that place. This is a moment where you can start to receive everything you're trying to earn freely in Jesus Christ. And so would you just pray with this with me? If you've never surrendered control to Jesus before, if you've never given your life to Jesus, man, I love you, and there is a hell, but there's also a heaven. There's also the saving grace of Jesus, and I would implore you to pray this with me now. Just pray, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I give my sin to you, I give my life to you. I believe in you, that your life and your death and your resurrection was for me. And I can love you, I can know you forever. If you prayed that, if you surrendered control for the very first time, you don't have to worry about hell, you don't have to fear man, you can know God and be with him forever. If you did do that, we have a connect card on your bulletin. Uh, you can just fill that out and just say, hey, I, I prayed that today, or I, I met Jesus today, or I surrendered control today, and we want to follow up with you and help you follow Jesus. As you sit there again, every head bowed, every eye closed. I know some of you, you say, well, Tim, I, I've already done that. I've already ceded control of my life. I surrendered to Jesus a long time ago. But as we talk about hell, as we talk about fear, if you're honest, you still feel some of that. You're still trying to hold on. You're still holding with a tight grip 
your religious works, your irreligious works, and you're not walking in the freedom that you have in Christ. And so if that's you, I would ask that you surrender control yet again to Jesus. He is gracious to forgive you, to help you, to walk with you, to enable you by his Holy Spirit to boldly leave this place as a child of God, forgiven, eternally secure, approved, completely in Jesus. So take a moment to do that. God, I want to thank you that you are a loving and a just God, that we can trust you, that maybe all of our questions didn't get answered today or even in this series, but one thing is sure, we can trust you. You are good, and you love us. No matter what we've done, no matter what's been done to us, no matter what we've forgotten about that we've done, the sin we've committed in our past, you have paid for it finally, fully, and freely through Jesus. And God, I pray that you would help us in this moment to receive that gift for the first time of salvation from hell, but also to you and to eternity with you in heaven. And God, I pray that those who have received that already, God, as we sing songs, as an act of surrender, we would raise our hands, we would get on the ground, whatever it is we need to do with a posture of our heart, that we would surrender control to you and we'd be reminded of all that you have done for us already so that we could know you and love you forever and so that we could walk in that freely this morning as children of the Most High God. Help us to celebrate you and all that you've accomplished on our behalf. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.